it has stood the test of time. God's book, the Bible, still relevant in today's complex world. It is written, sharing messages of hope around the world. There's a story told by the great literary giant of Russia, Leo Tolstoy. He tells the story of a man by the name of Pehom. Pehom lived in a little village, and there in that village, he had a little farm, and he had his whitewashed, bricked house. And there on that little farm, he enjoyed the fruits of his labor. But one day, while Pehom was out in the field and he was working, he pondered and asked himself the question, how much land does a man need? As he began to contemplate that question, how much land does a man need? Through the grapevine, he learned of a people called the Bashkers. Now, the Bashkers lived in a picturesque place, and they had lots of land. But the Bashkers were going to be doing something special with their land. They were going to be giving away a portion of their land. So Pehom learned of how they would do this. Here's what the deal was. For 1,000 rubles, which was a lot of money at the time, you would give it to the Bashkir tribe, and then you would have the opportunity at sunrise to begin a journey with a shovel in your hand. And every 100 meters, you would dig a hole and drop a stake. And you had until sunset to make a full and complete circle and end up back where you started. Whatever you could do in that approximately 12 hours, that would be your land for 1,000 rubles. So one day, Pehom made a visit to the Bashkirs, and there he met the chief, and he gave the chief 1,000 rubles. And the chief said, okay, Pehom, here's what you need to do. Here's your shovel. Here are your stakes. Now go claim your land. And so Pehom dashed, and every 100 meters, he would dig a hole, drop a stake, dig a hole, drop a stake. It got to about noon, and Pehom said to himself, I need to start turning back so I get there in time. Because you see, if you did not get there in time, you would lose your money and you would get no land. But just as Pehom was about to turn, he noticed this beautiful lake. And he noticed the woods behind the lake and he said, surely I need this lake and I need those woods to provide heat for me in these long winters. And so he hurried around the lake. He dug a hole every 100 meters, dropping a stake, dropping a stake. And he was pushing himself. He was pushing himself and pushing himself. And then as he was getting ready to turn back, he saw this meadow with a little babbling brook running through it. And he said, oh, I certainly need the babbling brook. I need that meadow. And so he pushed himself and he pushed himself, digging every hundred meters, dropping a stake, digging every hundred meters, dropping a stake. And as he pushed himself, it was one of those moments. Have you ever had one of those moments when you've been running or working hard and your chest starts to hurt because you've been working so hard? And Pehom was huffing and puffing and he was running and he was noticed the sun was setting and he could see in the distance the chief. And he began to run even harder and harder. And he would dig every hundred meters, drop a stake. He passed the woods. 
He saw the chief of the Bashkirs off in the distance. He knew that he would make it. He would dig that hole every 100 meters. And as he finally arrived to the chief, he fell down in exhaustion. And all the Bashkir people were cheering. But then they noticed. Pahom was not moving. And they turned Pahom over, thinking he had only been exhausted. But Pahom was not breathing. You see, Pahom died out of exhaustion. And Tolstoy ends the story with this question. How much land does a dead man need? And the Bashkir people answered that. They buried Pahom in six feet of land. You see, Tolstoy wrote this story as an allegory of what is happening in society of what is happening in society today. Some of you remember when the word multitasking did not exist in the dictionary. But we live in a society where we drive and shave and eat and talk on the phone all at the same time. We live in a world where we are pressed, pressed, pressed by the stresses of society and the stresses of the world in which we live. And it leaves us asking the question, is this really what God intended for our lives? The devices we have are supposed to make our life easier and more efficient. And we live in a world where one device is not enough. We have a smartphone, a tablet, a laptop, so on and so forth. Dear friends, we live in a society where there is no rest. Just press, press, press forward. Statistics tell us that this year 1.3 million Canadians will live with heart disease. Over 350,000 Canadians will be hospitalized with heart disease or stroke. And 66,000 Canadians will die this year of heart disease and stroke. With the major contributing factor to it being stress and anxiety in which they live. Dr. Nisa Goldberry of the New York University School of Medicine says this, chronic anxiety can significantly increase the risk of heart attacks, at least in men. There's a correlation between the heart and the mind. In an interesting study, 25% of Canadian workers actually say they have high stress and anxiety in their jobs. Three-fourths of Canadian workers indicate that they experience some type of stress. And when we talk about stress, we're talking about unhealthy stress. So here's the question I ask. Is this really what God intended for us? Or does God have the ultimate answer to the problem of stress, anxiety, tension, and worry? Today, we're going to take a journey back in time. Almost 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, the book of Revelation was written. Revelation's last day message, the true Jerusalem factor, calls out to us that Jesus, who is in the temple in heaven, has placed before us a solution to the frantic pace of the 21st century. It is a call to rest. Rest in our Creator. The Apostle John, writing from that rocky crag of an island, in Patmos. In Revelation chapter 4, he witnessed the throne room of heaven, and this is what he saw. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, 
and by your will they exist and were created. You see, creation is a powerful concept. It, it should not surprise us that in the 21st century, there is a great pushback from the concept of creation. But in the Bible, creation, this powerful concept, leads us back to the one who made us, and it gives us security and rest in his love and in his care. You see, the call of the first angel and the three angels' messages of Revelation chapter 14 and beginning in verse 6, that call is to give glory, to fear God and give glory to him. Why? And then the Bible says, For the hour of his judgment has come. This is the final key of the Jerusalem factor, and the reality of judgment is taking place in the heavenly sanctuary. Then the verse goes on to say, And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. You see, the call of the final days is a call back. Not just to be ready because we live in a time of judgment, but it is a call back to the worship of the Creator. So how do we worship the Creator of heaven and earth and find rest and security in Him? We need to go back in time to the very beginning of time. Let's go back to the very first book of the Bible. Go back to Genesis. There in Genesis, it records the creation week where God made the heavens and the earth and all that in them is. And he makes the trees, the plants, the water, all of those things. And then on the sixth day, the Bible says that God said this. Let us make man in our image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Creation is a powerful concept because it connects us with the one who made us. In a world that says all of this we see around us, all of this is just the result of some grand accident. God puts the brakes on and says, no, 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 no. Wait just a second. I made you. I formed you. I thought about you. You were by design. The Bible says that God knew each of us before we were even born, while we were yet in the womb. That creation week, God made everything perfect. The Bible then tells us what, that God did something on the seventh day. He didn't create any objects, but the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 2, these words. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Now, let me ask you a question that seems rather obvious. Did God rest on the seventh day because he was tired? No, God doesn't get tired. God rested on the seventh day with a specific purpose. What did God create on that sixth day? God created mankind on the sixth day. And then the Bible says he rested on the seventh day. Why? Why was it that God rested on the seventh day? Because God was able to understand that man would need a specified period of time in which he could reconnect with the Creator. So God created the Sabbath a window in time in which man could be revived, restored, and recreated, so to speak, in the presence of his creator. The Bible then says that God did something very special to that, that seventh day. What did he do? In Genesis 2, 3, it says, 
Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. The seventh-day Sabbath, given at creation, was to be God's perpetual reminder of our roots. The seventh day, you have the first day of the week, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day, and God comes to that seventh day, and the Bible says that he blessed it, and when he blessed it, he made it an eternal sign of the powerful creative acts of himself and his infinite love. And then the Bible says he sanctified it. That word sanctified literally means to be set aside for a holy purpose. And the Bible then says that he rested. At creation, God placed a seven-day cycle into the very fabric of our being. Now let me pose a few questions for you. How long is a year? Now, this is not a trick question, by the way. How long is a year? 365 days. Now, someone might have given the technical answer of 365.25 days. But the point is 365 days. What is that time duration? That is how long it takes for the earth to go around the sun. Then you have the month, 30 days long. How do we get the month? By the cycle of the moon going around the earth. What celestial body tells us how long a week is? Is that how long Saturn takes to get around? No. There is no celestial body that tells us how long the week is. The origin of the week comes from God himself. The origin is that seven-day week. And look, at this fascinating study that's been done. Recent research in something that is called chronobiology, it reveals these weekly rhythms. Susan Perry and Jim Dawson in the book, The Secrets Our Body Clocks Reveal, they said this, weekly rhythms known as chronobiology as circoseptan rhythms are one of the most puzzling and fascinating findings of chronobiology. Circoseptan literally means about seven. You see, they studied the human body as well as other organisms outside of humanity. And here's the amazing thing that they found. The research concluded the rejection of organ transplant seems to follow a seven-day cycle. The immune system response follows a seven-day cycle. Blood and urine chemicals follow a seven-day cycle. Blood pressure follows a seven-day cycle. Heartbeat, the common cold, the coping hormones they all follow a seven-day cycle. You see, it appears that God made us to operate on a seven-day cycle. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and in verse 33, the Bible says this, You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess." Isn't that fascinating? God promises that we would be well. Now, what's even more intriguing about this verse is that Deuteronomy chapter 5, earlier in the chapter, records God giving to Moses once again the Ten Commandments. You remember the story of the Ten Commandments. The children of Israel rebel after receiving the Ten Commandments. Moses throws down the tablets of stone and the tablets are broken. So he needs a second set of tablets. God rewrites those commandments on the tablets 
And the first portion of Deuteronomy chapter 5 records that rewriting. And then God says, hey, if you follow my ways, you'll live, you'll be well, you'll prolong your days. If you follow all of my commandments, including the Sabbath commandment, you'll be well. Now, did God know what he was talking about? Let's take a little journey into history. During the French Revolution and during Stalin's time in Russia, both of these ruling countries actually experimented and helped us understand this seven-day cycle. During the French Revolution, during the Age of Reason in the 18th century, France decided to move from a seven-day week to a 10-day week. Uh, They theorized that they would get more productivity out of their workers. But here was the problem. After they switched to a 10-day week, productivity actually decreased. The new secular rational week of 10 days was devised and approved by the ruling convention in October of 1793, and it didn't work. France returned to the seven-day work week. Unfortunately for the Russians, they failed to learn that lesson of history. And so Russia under Stalin also went to a 10-day work week. And notice what happens. After 11 years of disappointing production and epidemic irresponsibility in the workplace, Stalin called it quits. He gave the Soviet people back their seven-day week. Experiments have been done throughout history on shorter weeks, such as a four-day work week. And all of these experiments have utterly failed. Why is that? You see, because when God created man, he created man to function on a seven-day week cycle. Now, you'll remember when we've been studying the book of Daniel that we've noticed some interesting things. Daniel and Daniel chapter 7, as a reminder of that, speaking of a power, a little horn power, a religio-political entity, this is what he said about that power. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and laws. Whose law is this power trying to change? He's trying to change God's law. In fact, the Bible tells us at the end of time that there would be an entity that would address God's law and times. The book of Revelation also talks about that issue. Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 3, talks about the very same issue. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast and he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And here is the key that we must not miss in the context of this study. The key issue at the end of time, as outlined in the book of Revelation, is not where war will break out or who will be involved in that war or how that war will be administered. But the key question that the book of Revelation addresses is, who will we worship? 
Many people are looking for a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And friends, that may well happen. But the true Jerusalem factor is this, to look up to the heavenly Jerusalem, not the literal Jerusalem. And there we find Jesus, our high priest, the one who we should worship. The book of Revelation presents two entities. There is the dragon. Who is the dragon? The dragon is Satan. And then there is the lamb. Who is the lamb? Jesus, the one who dwells in the heavenly sanctuary. The book of Revelation presents two cities, the city of Babylon, the city of Jerusalem. The book of Revelation is all about choice. This is what the book of Revelation is all about. A choice on who will we worship. In the Garden of Eden, when God created mankind, he gave mankind the the seventh day Sabbath as a reminder that we wouldn't forget who the creator was, that we would worship the one who made the heavens, the earth, and all that in them is. And as a reminder of this in the book of Revelation, God's last day people who are faithful to him in the end times, what does the Bible say they do? They keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Revelation 14, 12 reminds us, here's the patience of the saints. Here are they who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And so we have this crisis. God made mankind with a seven-day cycle. He gave him the seventh-day Sabbath to remember him so so mankind would not forget God, which sounds a little obvious, but that's why God did it. But then at the end of time, we see this key issue of worship. Who will we worship? And you see, when God wrote the Ten Commandments, God could have written the Ten Commandments in any type of material he wanted to. But what did he write the Ten Commandments in? He wrote them in stone. You see, he did not write them in sand because with sand, the wind will blow away. The waters will wash it away. The stone represents an idea of eternity. God did not write it on paper because paper can burn up. He wrote it on stone to represent the endurance of the law for eternity. But more than the external tablets of stone, as we have studied previously, God desires more for you, which is why Hebrews 8 verse 10 says this, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Today, God has made plain that he loves you and he loves me and he has not forgotten us and he desires that we would not forget him. Do you desire to walk with him? Do you desire to experience full rest in him? He came to this earth to die for you so that you might live. And today he invites you to live fully in him. Today he invites you to experience the law of liberty and experience keeping the Sabbath holy, and it shall be well with you as you are in him. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have given us the Sabbath as a day that we can rest in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the dilemma. 
You want to eat healthy, but you feel it's going to be expensive. Well, I've got good news for you. Eating healthy can be very low cost. With careful planning and preparation, you can stretch your food dollar and still buy wholesome, nourishing food that tastes great. Here's how to do it. First, avoid buying convenience foods. They tend to be more expensive because the more that's done to food before you buy it, the more you pay. Preparing food from scratch will help stretch your dollars. And buy foods that will give you more bang for your buck. For example, purchase beans and vegetables like potatoes and carrots in bulk. Also, purchase fruits and vegetables that are in season. For example, buy strawberries in early summer, peaches in midsummer, and pears in the fall. For more information on in-season produce, visit the Foodland Ontario website. On the Forks Over Knives website, I read an article where the author was able to live on a budget of $1.50 per day for five days by purchasing only potatoes, carrots, brown rice, brown lentils, brown rice pasta, tomato sauce, and oatmeal. Sure, it was a very limited menu, but the author was creative, it was nutritious, and it worked. Here are some other helpful tips for eating inexpensively. Plan your food budget by planning your meals for the week. Make a shopping list and stick to it. Don't be swayed by the colorful packages that are vying for your attention on the store shelf. Check for sales and, although it might be a little old-fashioned, use coupons if you've got them. Also, shop at farmer's markets. You can get luscious produce at great prices. And shop on a full stomach. If you shop when you're hungry, you're likely to buy more than you really need. Been there, done that. After you've planned your meals and done your shopping, use some spare time to make as many of the meals as possible and freeze them. When you arrive home during the week, it will be easy to just reheat and you won't be tempted to spend money on takeout. And last, plant your own garden. If you've got a backyard, use it to grow your own organic food. You'll love it. Now, a quick word about beans. Beans really are a best buy item, especially when you buy them dry and in bulk. They're full of protein, fiber, and minerals. They're low in fat and high in the good carbs. What I've done here is I've boiled some agate soybeans given to me by It Is Written supporter, Mrs. Vilnev, who grows them in her garden. And I've added them to a soup, a salad, and a spinach collard green onion tomato kind of dish. You can add beans to rice, pasta, baked goods, and even puree them and use them as a dip with vegetables or on crackers like I'm doing here. This is the same agate soybeans, just put in the processor and look at that, luscious and so good. Use your imagination and use beans often. It's inexpensive and delicious to shop plant-based. I'll see you next time. My dear friends, God created a day that we could remember him and draw near to him. Today, I'd like to offer you for free a magazine called A Day to Remember. There you can learn more about the Sabbath and drawing near to Jesus during that time. In addition to that offer, I'd like to offer you the full set of The Jerusalem Factor. You can have all eight episodes in two DVDs. 
for any size donation. Here's the information you need for today's offer. To request today's offer, just log on to www.itiswrittencanada.ca. If you prefer, you may call toll-free at 1-888-CALL-IIW. Or if you wish, you may write to us at It Is Written, Box 2010, Oshawa, Ontario, L1H 7V4. Dear friend, God loves you so much that he made a day entirely to spend with you that you would draw nearer to him. If you'd like to learn more about drawing near to Jesus Christ, I invite you to go to our website, itiswrittencanada.ca. I hope you found true peace in Jesus today. I hope that you'll join us again next week. Until then, remember, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God.